Dear listeners, welcome to Medicine Today on Digital Health. In this podcast, we talk about digitization of healthcare, e-health, and topics connected to new technologies in healthcare. My name is Tiasha Zaitz, and I am a journalist of the Slovenian Medical Journal for Doctors, Medicine Today, where we focus on advances in medicine, healthcare, and pharmaceuticals. In this episode, we're going to talk about India. It's hard to imagine the size of the country, which has 1.3 billion people. There are big differences in access to healthcare depending on individuals' wealth and place of living. There is a big shortage of doctors and healthcare is expensive on an individual level since the majority, more than 60-70% to 70% of payments are out of pocket. But when it comes to digital health, that's where India really becomes interesting. According to GSMA, India is now the world's second largest smartphone market, overtaking the US in the first half of 2016. In two years, by 2019, a third of the population is supposed to own a smartphone. And in terms of numbers, that means 430 million people. Estimates around the number of mobile internet users by 2019 vary from 500 to 600 million people. So you can imagine this all sounds like pretty much paradise for mHealth developers. I discussed the situation in India with Prabhu Guptara, a distinguished professor of global business management and public policy at William Carey University in India. Mr. Guptara is a member of boards of different companies in the UK, Germany and Switzerland. He consulted organizations such as the Barclays Bank, Swiss food multinational craft Jakob Zuckert, Nokia pharma company Novo Nordisk and many others. He is a widely recognized authority on the impact of technology on strategy, long-range trends, influence of technology on society, corporate social responsibility, business development, and leadership issues. I think all this pretty much says it all about how interesting he is to talk to. But before the conversation starts, let me just invite you to listen to other episodes of Medicine Today on Digital Health as well. You can find them all either on SoundCloud or in iTunes. You can also subscribe to the podcast to be informed about each new episode. And if you like what you will hear, do rate the podcast. It will help more people see it in iTunes. Thank you. When we were setting up the hour for this discussion, you said as early um, in the morning as possible. And when I suggested 7 a.m., you replied that's perfect because that was 6 a.m. in your location. So I, I just I just have to ask, how much do you sleep? Because it seems like this is one of the secrets behind your success. You have like six titles from companies in three different countries in your signature Um in the email yeah i normally sleep very little and i usually get up very very early so it depends i don't normally set the alarm or anything like that i just wake up when i wake up 
I normally sleep about four hours a day. Four hours, is that sufficient for you? What does it mean in terms of coffee or tea consumption? Oh, very little. I, I drink hardly any tea or coffee. So you're one of the lucky few that don't have the biological need for a lot of sleep. I used to sleep a lot. I used to sleep about 10 hours, 12 hours a day. And then our first Prime Minister, Nehru, died. Uh, this was in 1966 or thereabouts. And um, there were radio programs on him uh, in which uh, I discovered that the man slept only four hours. And then I discovered why he slept four hours, because he taught himself to sleep four hours. And why had he taught himself to sleep four hours and how? Well, during the Second World War, he was in England, and he discovered that Churchill used to sleep only four hours a day. And he thought, if Churchill can sleep four hours a day, so can I. And why did Churchill only sleep four hours a day? Because Churchill had heard that Napoleon used to sleep only four hours a day. And so... Nehru had modeled himself on Churchill, who had modeled himself on Napoleon, and it probably goes back a very long way. And I thought, this is ridiculous. Uh, if my prime minister can sleep four hours, I should be able to sleep at least six hours and not 12. <laughs> so how did you... I'm, I'm sorry that we're getting into this sleep discussion, but like, how did you reprogram yourself? That's the first thing. And the second thing is that, okay, so Napoleon only slept for four hours. Many geniuses did in in history but they a lot of them also went mad and some do make the correlation between the lack of sleep contributing to this well i think obviously everybody's different and some people need more sleep and some people need less sleep but i always say that most people probably have more sleep than they need and I, i'm not saying everybody but you know most people probably have more sleep than they need and it's only by experimenting that you can find out how much sleep you really need but I was determined to sleep less because, you know, because of my prime minister and being inspired by him. And so every day I cut back my sleep 15 minutes. And what I found was that uh, when I got to on to about uh, eight hours, uh, I, was, I was sleeping perfectly normally. I was working perfectly normally. And I thought, well, let me continue cutting it down. So then I cut it down to seven hours and there was no problem. Then I cut it down to six hours, absolutely no problem. Then I cut it down to five hours, I started having problems. Um, because uh, it didn't really work, but I was determined to continue. So I cut it down to four hours, and I found that I would collapse every month or so and sleep about 24 hours. But I thought, I'm obviously overdoing it, but that's okay. Uh, you know, if the only cost is that every month or so I collapse for 24 hours, that's okay. Uh, but then after some time, the collapsing disappeared, and I would still sleep about four hours. Okay. Um, we're going to talk about healthcare uh, today, especially digitization in India. But before that, I have one more question. You come from India. You also lived in Scotland from three years, then UK for 16 years. And then uh, because you're a member of the board of Alpha Medicus in Munich in Germany, I'm assuming that you're also there quite often. Plus, you've been a consultant to German, Swiss, Finnish, UK companies. With how many of the healthcare systems do you have experience with? Personal experience, I have Scotland, England, Switzerland, and India. So what kind of comparison could you make? So the NHS system I have known since 1960, uh, in, in the UK, National Health Service System in the UK, I've known since 1976, um, in spite of its deterioration in quality since 1976, I find the system still works very well. 
I find that the people are actually much nicer than they used to be in 1976, though the systems are worse. And the systems break down at uh, completely unexpected points, not necessarily, uh, but maybe sometimes, I don't know, in relation to crucial health matters. But simple things like appointments and, you know, notifications and the cover that is needed for doctors if they are themselves sick for any reason or away on holiday or something. So the systems don't work so well, but the people are much nicer than they used to be in the UK. That's what I find. And I'm sure medical quality has improved because obviously the equipment has improved and the precision has improved and all that. Um, uh, nursing care is, I find, very good uh, in the UK. Switzerland obviously is quite different because Switzerland is both precise, much more medically advanced in terms of its equipment and things like that. Uh, the care is much more universally available and uh, it doesn't really matter how poor or rich you are, it's equally good because of their insurance system, which is different from the UK insurance system. So the UK has got this two-level system. One is the national system, one is a private system. And in Switzerland, there is only a private system, but everybody subscribes to it. And there are slightly different levels, but they only have to do with comfort. They don't have to do with the medical quality of care. Uh, and they don't have much to do with the timing of care. Uh, obviously, there is some difference, but not a lot. In, this, in the UK system, there's a huge difference in terms of timing. So if you're a private patient, you can, can you can get treated almost immediately. If you're an NHS patient, uh, you know, you may have to wait for a non-essential thing six months or a year. India, obviously, is, is a completely two-tier system where if you're poor, you don't have any care at all. And you can be exploited and you can be, you know, even maltreated, uh, meaning wrongly treated. Uh, and you have very little recourse against doctors. NHS system is public. So access is good, but there are other organizational issues facing the system. Then the Swiss system is, as you've mentioned, private and therefore much different. But then when you look at India, it's a completely different world in terms of access. If I just look at the data, there's like 0.7 doctors per 1,000 people. Uh, in Europe, European countries have on average between three to four. Plus there's uh, huge out-of-pocket expenses in India, like over 60%. The country only attributes 4% of GDP on health, which is half as much as the European country do. Plus, it's just difficult to grasp the size of India because it's so big. I mean, 1.2 billion people. It's impossible to even imagine it as one country. And it's not because it has many regions and uh, states. So um, let me let me just give you uh, one very tiny comment on Switzerland. It's a public-private system. It's not really a private system uh, because it is nationally controlled and nationally organized. In other words, a Swiss person, by virtue of being Swiss, is forced to pay health insurance, must pay health insurance. There's no way of avoiding it. But the Swiss person has a choice of which insurance company he or she goes to. So there are several insurance companies, all of them nationally regulated. And uh, you then pay, uh, once you pay your health insurance, then for every visit to the doctor itself is free. But for every prescription that you buy, uh, any, every medicine you take, you pay 10%. And every health operation or anything like that you do, you pay 10% up to a certain amount. So the poorest person can say, I'm going to pay up to, let's say, for argument's sake, a thousand francs. 
uh, the richer person can say 2,000 francs or 3,000 francs. So that changes the insurance premium that he or she has to pay. But after that quantity is consumed by the patient, it's free. So you get, as it were, 10,000 francs worth of payment. I'm, I'm giving an illustration uh, for the sake of 1,000 francs. Uh, and then after that, if you still need medical treatment, everything is free. What it does is it forces you as a person to think about your medical consumption, look after yourself well, because obviously you don't want to spend a thousand francs on top of your health insurance premiums anyway, if you can help it. So it forces you to be responsible about your medical consumption in a way that the NHS system in the UK does not. In the UK, because it's completely free, you can go for a cold, you can go for a sneeze, you can go for any odd pain, and you pay zero, you pay nothing. So it, it, it encourages people to be irresponsible about their medical consumption, in my view. If we turn to India, it doesn't provide good access and there's no real encouragement for healthy living. Plus, there's the cultural and the religional uh, influences to perception of health. Well, it encourages you to look after yourself in the sense that you know that if you don't, uh, you're on your own and you have to pay all of it. But of course, in a country like India, which is highly polluted, it is very difficult to look after yourself well. And the stresses of normal living are such everyday living, like getting your water, getting your milk, getting your electricity, getting your getting from A to B. The stresses of living us, the normal living, not the stresses that come from your job, which are on top of that. Uh, but the stresses of normal living are so high that actually the state of health is pretty poor. So when I compare, you know, I was kicked out of India. I was a political refugee. So I was kicked out of India when I was 26. When I And I've not lived an easy life. I've lived quite a tough life, stressful life in many different ways. But if I compare myself health-wise to the average person of my qualifications, my level in society in India, I am far better off health-wise than they. And they are doing yoga and they are keeping taking care of themselves and all the rest of it in a way that I'm not. I also do practice yoga. I do occasionally take exercise, but it's very sporadic. I mean, I take zero care of myself, really, compared to my Indian colleagues. But my state of health is so much better. Why? Because I live in a relatively clean environment, in a relatively stress-free environment where I don't need to struggle for everyday things. Many entrepreneurs feel that a lot could be achieved in terms of health and healthcare improvement with uh, digital health. In India, there will be close to 430 million smartphones by 2019. And a lot of people kind of expect that with the apps and other technological solutions, healthcare will improve, of course, only to a certain extent. How do you see these predictions and optimism? So from a business point of view, if you're an Indian company, you can probably do quite well. One of the issues, of course, is licenses for everything and battling with the corruption in the country. If you're a foreign company, it's uh, much more difficult to do that because you have international standards that you have to think about and you have to think of your international image. And obviously, if something happens which is wrong in India, it affects you everywhere. So if you indulge in bribery, for example, in India and you are exposed as having indulged in bribery, this, of course, does not do you any good in terms of your international reputation and your international image. Or if uh, you are for any reason... Uh, imagined or real considered to be exploiting doctors or nurses or anything like that, let alone child labor, then of course you are immediately in big trouble in the West. So your main source of income as a company, which is the West, will immediately be affected, which is why many 
companies are very hesitant about going to India unless they've been in India a long time or they're very good local partners who can, you know, ensure that at least minimum standards are met. Or you have your own very reliable employees in India who, who, who you worked with for some time and there is both trust and understanding on these kinds of issues. The second, so the first problem is bureaucracy and corruption, dealing with it as a Western company going into India. The second problem is, of course, standards, because standards are not the same. So let me illustrate why is it that standards in Switzerland can be so much higher than in England when the average Swiss doctor is probably no more educated than the average British doctor. Well, it's because the systems as a whole, meaning everybody in the system, is better educated in Switzerland. Not that the doctors themselves are better educated than the doctors in the UK, but the nurses are better educated, the cleaners are better educated, the uh, guy who's your medical clinician, you know, the clinical guy who's looking after your equipment is better educated and probably more responsible than the guy in the UK. So the system as a whole holds up because the lower level employees are more highly educated, more highly trained, more highly responsible, self-responsible than is the case, sadly, now in the UK. Uh, just to illustrate, if I if I ask a guy to come and do a plumbing job in my house in the UK, I probably have to chase him because he has too much work to do or he's too lazy or something or disorganized or something. I have to chase him and keep chasing him. Hey, when are you going to come and do my work? And then when he comes and does my work, I am not a plumber. I don't know anything about plumbing. But I can almost guarantee that the quality of the job he will do will be much worse than the quality of the job the Swiss guy will do, who, by the way, will turn up exactly on the time he said he would. So if he says I'll come on Monday 8 o'clock in the morning or Friday 4 o'clock in the evening or whatever it is, he will turn up at that time because he said it. So I don't have to waste my time and my effort and my energy thinking, is this man going to come? Up, come? Is he not going to come? If he's going to come, what kind of job is he going to do? When is the job going to break down or anything like that? And the same applies, obviously, to the medical field. And the same applies much more to India. The doctors are no less educated than the doctors in the UK or Switzerland. The nurses are not as well educated. But the motivation level for the nurse is not the same as the motivation level for the nurse in Switzerland or in the UK, let alone the UK. And this has to do with caste. It has to do with the sense of responsibility. It has to do with the notion of time and the culture. It has to do with the notion of the value of life. Uh, in the culture, etc., etc. It has to do with very deep things. Standards are not as well maintained in India as they are in the UK or in Switzerland, except in private hospitals. If you can afford to go to a private hospital, then, of course, it's different. And if you're a Western company, you will, of course, invest well in making sure that your lower-level employees are as well-educated, as motivated as the uh, guys would be in your system in the UK or Switzerland or America or anywhere. And so you need to invest more to get the same quality of uh, care in India than you do as a company, I mean. Because the in, in Switzerland, the general education system will look out, or in the UK, the general education system looks after you and the general culture looks after you, uh, puts you on a higher level, if you see what I mean, than India does. And so you, you don't need to invest as much as a private company in getting the same level or quality of commitment and so on from your lower level employees. The third issue is a legal one. Even though the legal system in India is theoretically the same as the UK, minor differences, to getting any justice out of the Indian system is very, very long-winded. 
is not as expensive as the UK, certainly not as expensive as Switzerland, but it just takes ages. The average length of time that it takes you to settle a court case in India is probably 14 times as long as it is in the UK. So why is that? Because that's what I've heard from different sources, like that the issues with India are... The, the, uh, the IP protection, the quality control. IP protection in theory is no worse in the UK, in India now than in the UK. Uh, so that means in terms of standards, it's the same. But where India falls down is implementation, because if my IP is violated in the UK, I can go to the courts and get very quick uh, remedy for it. If, if my IP is violated in India, in theory, the system is very similar and the procedures are very similar. But in fact... When you go to the court, the case just takes that much longer. And justice delayed is justice denied, as you know in the, in, 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 in the old phrase. Uh, that, is, that, is a, that is a huge issue. It's to do with the number of cases going through the courts uh, versus the number of courts that are there. So if you look at the number of judges' seats that are lying empty in India, it's quite phenomenal. And so there are system issues in India that are that are so first of all the number of courts is not adequate. Then in the number of courts there obviously has to be a certain number of judges, and there are lots of judges seats lying empty. Why are judges seats lying empty? That's another complicated uh, administrative, logistical, and corruption related issue. But anyway, the the fact of the matter is the demand for justice is much greater than the supply of courts and so on, which which means that cases just take longer to go through the system. Uh, the next problem is that even when a particular decision has been taken by the courts, to get it implemented is much more difficult in India than it is in the West. In, in India, for example, the government can flout a, a decision of the court. A company can flout a decision of the court much more easily. In the UK, it would be unthinkable. It may not be unthinkable, but it would be impractical. And you would be caught sooner or later and the law would come along and, and you would be forced to do whatever the court has decided. You can delay it by three months or four months or something, maybe, but that's it. In Switzerland, it's instant, almost. You know, it would be from day to day that the law would come down on you if you didn't implement what the court had decided. The final issue for a company is that even after you've done all this and you've made profits, it's actually quite difficult to get your money out of India. That's the second thing people told me, that it's good to go there as a company if you want to spread your business in India, but like just getting profit out it's impossible. Why? No, no, it's not impossible. And certainly well-established companies, the German companies, the British companies that have been there for 200 years or 100 years or 50 years, you know, they've worked out the method of doing it. It takes time to work out the procedures, to set up everything, you know, legally, to get the licenses and whatever, uh, permissions from the Reserve Bank of India, etc., etc. It's a bureaucratic, slow system dogged by a lot of corruption. It can be done. But it just means that you need determination and effort and investment of time and energy in order to make sure that the systems are set up properly. And once they're done, then, of course, you can get your money out. But the effort required, required to do it, you should not underestimate. Okay, so what does this mean in the perspective of digital health solutions and digital health startups? The question to ask is why it is that Indian companies which are one of some of the IT leaders in the world, have not been so successful in setting up digital health systems in India. So we have, we have actual hospitals in India, which are world-class. So people go from America, Europe, Germany, etc., even Africa, if they're rich enough, to India to get their health care in India. You need a hip operation, you need a heart operation, whatever it is. 
you can go and get this done in India and it's much cheaper than doing it in Africa. It's much cheaper than doing it in the Middle East. It's much cheaper than doing it, certainly much, much cheaper than doing it in Europe. So a lot of people do medical tourism in India. So it's not that Indian standards are necessarily poor. Indian standards can be very good, but these are individual hospitals that you can go to where you pay over the odds compared to an Indian uh, in order to get your treatment done. And obviously, as an Indian as well, if you're rich enough, and some Indians are rich enough, they go to these private hospitals, they get world-class care. So in a country which is as varied in, as India and as large as India, why have Indian IT firms, which are the largest or and some of the most sophisticated in the world, why have they not been able to set up a, a, an adequate M-Health system? It's to do with system problems in the country. And if Indian companies haven't cracked it yet, then certainly Western companies will find it much more difficult to crack it. Not impossible. Sometimes you have beginner's luck. Sometimes you have a different perspective coming in from the outside, which can help you. Uh, so, but, but the thing is that any Western company or any, you know, any non-Indian company going into India must study the market well and understand from the Indian perspective what is not working or what makes it difficult to work in India for you to be able to work successfully in the country. A lot of M Health apps and services are subscription based. What would be the equivalent of a 20 euro subscription fee in India for an app to be affordable for the people? So, how much should a subscription be to reach a large population in India? This is, I just want to illustrate for the Western companies. India has a large population, but and of course many of them are very poor. So uh, roughly 30% of the population lives on less than a $2.25 a day. So obviously they are not your target market. Then the next population, the next third of the population lives on twice that, let's say $5 a day. They are not your target population either. So that writes off two-thirds of the population. But as you say, there are there is a third of the population that could be your target uh, population, which is 400 million people, which is a lot of people. Uh, if it's not 450, 400 million, it may be 250 million, but it's still a huge population. It's as much as the population in the whole of Europe, for example. Uh, if you have 250 million people who could be your target, so the Indian person actually pays a lot for health because of having to cope with all the problems they're confronted with. Many of these are minor issues and they deal with them with, with local or traditional medicine. I use a lot of traditional Indian medicine myself in, in our family. Traditional medical systems are widely available or at least easily available and relatively cheap herbs and spices and minerals and things like that, which are, you know, which are easy to use. Everybody knows how to use them and you sort out most problems like that. So when it comes to chronic or acute diseases, particularly infectious diseases, that's where the Indian person has problems because the systems for dealing with these are difficult to access uh, and they are um, expensive. So any kind of insurance system that would uh, look after acute cases, particularly in the cities where access is relatively easy, would be the thing to aim at. And the cities, as you know, are very large. India is more than 50% now urbanized. So out of this 400 million, or let's say 250 million, um, 125 million are in your target markets in the big cities in India. So these are big cities like Delhi, Bombay, Calcutta, Bangalore, Pune, etc., etc. You know, if you take the top 100 cities, then you have the bulk of the population you're aiming at. Because the moment you get out of the big cities, or, or the moment you get out of tier 2 cities, 
uh, life becomes rather more difficult and it's more difficult to organize and run and everything. You would need to set up a system which is in conjunction with, ins- with, with an insurance company. You would need to set up a system which is in conjunction with an... How much would an Indian be prepared to pay in terms of insurance? That's something you would have to do some calculations on. But for approximately, like for an average middle class person, that's one question. And the second question is how much could a poor person afford since, you know, the main argument of digital technologies and startups usually is that this could increase access even for the poorest. I'm sure it can be done, but it would require recruiting and training an army of people because question of access is not a question of technology. My app or my smartphone will mean that I can talk to the doctor anytime. Okay, so the doctor may be sitting in London, it doesn't matter, or New York or wherever, it doesn't matter, or Delhi or Bombay, it doesn't matter. I'm in a village, I've got a smartphone. Through this smartphone, I can take a photograph of my problem, right? I can say I'm hot, my temperature is so-and-so, Uh, which is easy to do because even in remote areas there are thermometers and now in India um, uh, and uh, this is I have a I have a pimple on my skin or I have a rash on my skin or uh, I have a lump on my skin whatever it is you know I can take a photograph of that I can describe my symptoms so the doctor on the basis of that can do what diagnose and that's it very little I can take my pulse I can uh, possibly check my blood pressure if I have the right equipment which would be it's needed to be supplied to every single person who's been uh who's been who's in my system okay but what can you do with that you need very elementary ways of testing urine you need a very elementary ways of testing blood before you know what the matter is exactly in the previous episode we had this big discussion on biosensors and the different medical kits for home care and home use and one of my biggest dilemmas was so okay you have everything you need for diagnosis but after that if you do find out that you're sick you still need to go to the doctor for a prescription or for medicine or anything in the cities it's not a problem in the cities you can do it because in the cities once i have a testing uh, system at home then uh, using smartphones and everything else uh, chips and all the rest of it i can di- i can have a diagnosis of what is wrong i don't need access to the doctor for that diagnosis accurate diagnosis brilliant Now I need to go and get the medicines. Who is going to prescribe the medicine? And because obviously you need a prescription. And who's going to guarantee the quality of the medicine that I'm buying? Exactly, like the the quality control is one also one thing that we just briefly mentioned. It is not insoluble, but it is it is a problem. So I go to the doctor, uh, I I mean I do the diagnosis, I talk to the doctor if needed, but then prescription needs to be issued. Okay, that can also be somehow medically organized technologically digitally organized with the local pharmacy it can be done so the pharmacy then issues a medicine and this turns out to be of not the right quality so or 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 has has uh, has has the wrong effect on me because of whatever reason so now who is legally responsible for this and the answer is <laughs> we don't know you would need to sort it out because you know we don't have digital health systems we don't therefore have a legal we don't even have a legal system to deal with this issue at the moment but once the legal system has been set up then obviously it becomes a question of how many people will trust in the system enough to subscribe to it rather than just go to a man they know around the corner who's probably treated my mother and my father and my grandmother and my grandfather pay him whatever i need to pay him at the point i need to pay him rather than going for a subscription based system but i think with the younger people and particularly younger professionals it's easy 
certainly much easier to set up the system. So if you go to a city like Bangalore, which is a large number of IT professionals, or Pune, or even Bombay, but Bombay with a lot of non-professionals as well as, of course, then you've got an ideal population to start with, and you've got a sufficiently large population to start with. And that's where you should begin, because the, the level of education generally is higher. You've got sufficient number of IT professionals. The, the infrastructure is not too bad compared to Bombay or Delhi. The health systems, meaning hospitals and all that, doctors and all that, are much more easily accessible per head of the population. So so when the figures that you were quoting earlier are national averages, of course. So, but, but they are much better in the cities and they're much worse in the villages. So in villages, there you can go hundreds of miles and find nobody... But in the cities, you can walk, uh, you know, maybe you, you need to travel 20 minutes or half an hour, 40 minutes, one hour, but certainly not more than that to get to your doctor, or your hospital, or whatever it is. Whereas even in the UK, you may need to travel two hours to get to your hospital, three hours to get to your hospital. Taking all this into account, in your talks, you're talking a lot about the challenges of growth in uncertain times and blocks to innovation. How would you, in these parameters, describe India or maybe just sum up in a few points where you see the influence of the economic state on the development of the country when it comes to healthcare? Well, uh, the systems have been improving and uh, in India has been becoming much more innovation friendly. And the, and the evidence for that is, of course, the growth of the IT companies. Uh, but, but the reason the IT companies grew was because they were outside the frame for legislation. You know, at the time the legislative system was set up in India, uh, IT didn't exist. So IT came along and there was no way of controlling it because there were no licenses that were needed for, to do what you needed to do. All you needed was a telephone connection. Uh, you needed a computer, which was difficult to import at one point. Now it's not a problem to import computers into India and uh, the whole electricity and telephone system has become much better. It's not, it's not ideal by any means. Even in the cities, you know, we have blackouts and all that, and then you need to have generators, your own private generators and all that sort of thing. Ultimately, it's a question of political will. And the willingness to enable the average citizen to have the opportunities for education and entrepreneurship, which at present we don't have. But generally, the system is improved. You can look back over 70 years and you can say it's a difference between night and day. I'm glad you mentioned uh, also politics and the role of societal development when it comes to technology adoption and creation. From this perspective, how do you see... Uh, the brain drain from India in the world which is shifting to deglobalization, uh, Trump becoming the president of the US, Brexit happening and a lot more conservatism rising up in Europe. What do you think that means in terms of the development inside the country? Well, um, as there will probably be less immigration out of India, probably, I mean, it's difficult to tell, educated immigration out of India, then it will mean that many more educated people who would have liked to go abroad can't go abroad. Uh, you know, the doors will be either shut or slowing the rate of immigration. Then there will be a greater number of educated people who will have to stay back in India, even if they don't want to, or even if they would have liked not to. And this will increase the pressures for reform in the country it'll increase the pressures for change in the country. So as long as a political leader or a rich person could say, well, my son is going to be educated at Harvard or Yale or Oxford or uh, Munich or Zurich or whatever, 
um, he didn't or she or they didn't need parents didn't need to worry too much about the quality of education in India. But if education abroad is going to become more expensive, which it is, because obviously as deglobalization strikes, um, then the fees charged to foreigners are going to rise, quite apart from the fact that education itself will become more expensive. Um, for all kinds of reasons I won't go into just now, but I expect fees to continue rising in the West. Um, and as the value of the rupee is hit, which it undoubtedly will be as barriers go up, just as the value of the yen will be hit, because of course currencies, the value of the currency depends on the GDP and depends on how much you're exporting and importing. So I expect the value of the Chinese and Indian currencies to fall compared to the values of uh, currencies in the West. Then, of course, it becomes more expensive to set your, send your children abroad as well as practically more difficult because countries are erecting these barriers to getting foreign students in. And uh, people used to invest to spend, send their children abroad not only because they got a better education abroad, but of course because there was a hope that they would settle down in the West and maybe even bring them as parents to the countries. So it was a kind of economic investment. Uh, and this, of course, becomes more and more difficult. And so since this avenue of escape for the rich, so to speak, from their own dilemmas in our own countries in the West, uh, uh, is not possible or is much less possible, then people will have to face the fact that their own countries need to be reformed much faster. So as we Indians will, will then have to focus attention instead of only blaming the British and blaming the Americans and blaming the Chinese and blaming the Russians, uh, we will have to set our own horse, house in order, which is what we should have been doing for the last 70 years, but we've not done it except in, in some minimal way wherever we've been forced to do it. So I think the pressures for change and reform in the country, in our, in our countries, will change. And that will that'll mean a much better deal for the average Indian. Ultimately, it's always a question of politics. It's always a question of politics, because politics will always win over economics, and economics will always win over technology. You're currently involved in uh, Alpha Medicus, a German company selling a platform that enables doctors safe communication with their patients. If a patient uses a platform, he or she has a 24-7 access to all medical do documents. And this is really important knowing that German healthcare market is very siloed. So if you're going from one doctor to another, you need to take all the medical exams and results with you. Germany is, to me, like a little India. You know, it has 16 states. Okay, India has 29, but the the similarity is in silosis, in, in the fact that there's no data transfer. How many similarities in terms of these organizational structures uh, do you see across the world when it comes to barriers to better healthcare systems? So, you know, every organization which grows beyond a certain size has silo problems. It doesn't matter if it's a medical field or in uh, manufacturing field or in mining or in services or what it is, because the larger an organization becomes, the more bureaucratic it becomes. And the more bureaucratic it becomes, obviously, the more barriers arise internally, even inside the same organization. So this is a natural consequence of size. Now, uh, on top of that, obviously, there are physical distance problems. So if, um, if you are living in Munich, but you have an accident in Berlin, uh, you can obviously get access through the normal system, I don't mean through Alpha Medicus or any other digital system, you can, of course, get access to your records, but it takes time because distance 
creates its own problems. Physical distance creates its own problems. So there's organizational distance due to size. There is physical distance which strikes you. And then, of course, if your accent is not in Berlin, but is in, let's say, um, um, Serbia, where there is a time difference of one hour or in or in uh, Slovenia is a time difference of one hour, this time difference will also affect things because it narrows the window in which you can actually get the access to the information because I need to ring somebody, I need to talk to somebody, I need you know something done. And um, the advantage of a platform like Alpha Medicus is not only that it gives you 24-7 access to your medical data, but that it does it anywhere in the world. So you can be sitting in a time zone 12 hours away and you still have access to your to your system, to, to, to all the information you need. This doesn't sort out the problem that if you have an accident in Mexico or in New Delhi or in a village in, in the middle of China or Vietnam or wherever, that you may still have difficulty getting to, an, to, to a doctor. Or if you have no difficulty getting to a doctor because of the access that 24-7 is provided by Alpha Medicus, you may still have difficulty getting hold of a medicine because you may not have a, you may not have a pharmacy where you are, or even if there is a pharmacy where you are, you may not speak the local language. You know, so there are all kinds of practical problems that the alphabetical system cannot guarantee to solve wherever you are. There are a certain number of things it can help you with, and whatever it can help you with is great uh, because nobody else is helping you with that. So at least you have that help. So um, any technological means simply acts as an overlay or a shortcut for existing systems as they are. But if there is no system or if the system is weak or the system is poor, technology can only help you to a certain extent. At the end of the day, you do need good infrastructure wherever you are. And then technology can speed things up. I say technology is a multiplier. And technology can speed things up, but it can't create out of thin air what is not there. So we are running out of time. What would you say Western countries could learn from India? Well, a huge uh, amount of creativity, innovation, bootstrapping, uh, doing things uh, on the cheap. I mean, financially, economically, not, not, not in the wrong way. And thinking out of the box. So if you go to a hospital like Anand in India, they have pioneered ways of doing uh, eye operations, for example, and other people are doing it on heart operations and so on, very much faster than anything in the West. India has a huge amount to teach. And Indians generally have a huge amount to teach because we are a very inventive, creative kind of people. And we are very good at thinking out of the box. Uh, and this comes from having to survive in very bad systems for thousands of years, very poorly organized systems for thousands of years. So uh, one of the reasons why one-third of Silicon Valley is Indian is because, uh, not just because we can get there, but because having got there, we can actually do things better, faster, cheaper than many other people. Uh, so those are the things I think people have to learn or can learn from India if they wish, or from Indians if they wish. And that, I think, is just the perfect answer to, to finish up uh, this conversation. Thanks very much, Jasa. Have a good day. This was the seventh episode of Medicine Today on Digital Health. This podcast is produced by the Slovenian branch of medical journals published by Bonnier under the name Medicine Today.
If you have any questions, comments or suggestions, feel free to write to my email tjasa.zajc at finance.si. You can also find me on Twitter under ZAJCTJASA. And again, do enjoy other episodes as well. In the sixth one, we talked about why wearables are dead and how it's time to set aside simple sensors we happen to have and make space for biosensors, ingestibles, embeddables and implantable sensors. In the second episode, we talked about IT and why it's so hard to integrate into healthcare. And there's quite a few more topics you might be interested in if you're from the medical field or simply want to understand healthcare better. Thank you for listening.